Hey, NASCAR Nation, I'm Mamba Smith, and welcome to Mark Mamba and the Mayor. Man, do we have a surprise for you all today. One of NASCAR's greatest ambassadors from one of NASCAR's greatest families, the man himself, KP, Kyle Petty, is here to chat with us. You know it's going to be crazy with Mark, Jeff, and Kyle together, and trust me, you don't want to miss these stories. So strap in and hang on. It's Mark Mamba and the Mayor. All right, gentlemen. That's the ones you got to watch out for in that rush hour traffic. Those old people that have lost their pay. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Mark, Mamba, and the Mayor. First off, Mark, we, we got the boys back, finally. It's been me and you holding it down for a minute, but it's good now. It's good now. Good to have these guys back on with us because I, I can't carry the show. and You do a great job, but you can't do it by yourself. Jeff, it's good to see you. We've missed you, buddy. Well, I didn't know. Uh, you know, I knew Marcus retired. I didn't know who you were, but good to see you doing something. Hey, you know, yeah. It's good. Yeah. And if you guys have heard a, another voice laughing, we got Kyle Petty. KP is in the house. What's going on, Kyle? Not much, man. This should be the four M's. Mark, Mamba, uh, the mayor, and the maniac. So there's four of us here today. Look, okay. So I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. I'm excited for this because just this blend. Uh, this is the first time we've had a guest, so you're on top <laughs> of the board, Kyle. We, I'm just gonna dive right off into it because Mark wanted to talk about the first time you guys met, and he's been telling me about it for a couple weeks now. So I'm excited to hear about it, Mark. What was about the first meeting between you and Kyle? Well, my first NASCAR race was the Daytona 500, in 1973. My dad took me and my buddies down for for the Daytona 500, and we were there all week speed weeks and i picked richard petty as my favorite driver the king of course my dad he picked buddy baker but that's a different story richard was my guy but we went to talladega and then we went to daytona again in in 74 so richard's my man and to me the king is royalty right 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 i have that picture in my mind of this family being royalty and i you know i start my racing career and i come up through the ranks and i wind up going to taking my first car to north wilkesboro for my first race in about april of 81 and when I meet Kyle, you know, I, I'm expecting family royalty. And, man, you get a regular guy. I mean, you know, it was incredible. I was just so surprised because I had these expectations of him being, you know, way above right. me. You know, and like me being just a peasant. And when I met Kyle, man, he treated me like, you know, with huge respect, like I was a, a racer like his daddy was. It was really amazing. And what I'd like to say is that says a lot about Kyle's character. My first impression of him was was the same impression that I have today. The dude is grounded. He's a real man. He speaks his mind and he gives respect when respect is required. So I love Kyle. I had the opportunity, Kyle, to read your book. Uh, Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. As soon as I got it and I could not put it down in four days, I had it from front to back. It was fantastic. And anybody who hasn't read <laughs> Kyle's book, read his book. Because it, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I got a knot in my throat a couple of times as well. So it's an yeah. amazing job. No, listen, I appreciate it. I, I have to tell you my Mark Martin story. Here's, here's, my, here's my thing with Mark is from the time Mark Martin started racing, I wanted to be Mark Martin. Man, he, and no, serious, serious. I grew up with Richard Petty and David Pearson and Buddy Baker and Kale and Bobby Isaac and Bobby and Donnie. And, and those, were my, those were my guys. And 
they, they will always be my guys because I grew up at 8, 9, 10, 11 years old going to the racetrack with my dad in the late 60s into the early 70s. But Mark was the first guy that I knew, that, and I didn't know him, but that I read in Stock Car Racing Magazine and in Speed Sport News. Here's this kid out of Arkansas kicking butt and taking names, and he's my age. He's close to me, man. He's close to me. And there's a guy that you see, and it's like, man, you could do this. There's another guy out there doing this. You can do this, too. When Mark showed up, you know, that old Buick, and you sat on the pole at Nashville. I think he sat on the pole at Nashville um, yeah. in, a cu- in a cup race. Yeah, our third race. We third race. Yeah, man. I mean, just was going to kick butt. I'm just barely trying to get around the racetrack, and here this kid is on the pole. And I'm thinking, man, you got to go kick these old guys' butts because I, I couldn't. I had already been trying. And and listen, it's tough when you drag back in the car at 18 or 19 years old and your dad's left you 16 times in the middle in a race, man. That's a, that's a tough ride home sometimes. I have been a Mark Martin fan, and I, I will say the same thing about Mark. Mark was that guy when he showed up. He was everything Stock Car Racing Magazine said and everything Speed Sport News said. He was a racer. And that's that's what I grew up. Guys that race. I've said it before, man. You know, you didn't dream about a shoe deal. You didn't dream about doing commercials. You didn't dream about all that stuff. You dreamed about sitting in that seat and hanging on that steering wheel and looking out front and there's nobody in front of you but a flag guy with a checkered flag and everybody else is behind you. And that's your dream. And and that's who Mark Martin was. And that's who you've always been. I, I can honestly say that you're the, just that kid from from Arkansas that came and kicked a bunch of butt, went home, but you're the same person you always were, man. And I, I appreciate that and love that more than anything else, man. Well, that's humbling. Jeff, I know you got you now work with Kyle on the NBC side, so I know you guys got some <laughs> you guys got some stories together. I work with both of these guys. It explains his gray hair. <laughs> First of all, these two guys are respected by so many people in the sport because of the people they are. You know, a lot of people come in and have accomplishments or, or whatever, but these two guys are uh, respected by because of the not just sex on track, but the the who they are, their character, their their willingness to do whatever and still care about the sport and love love the sport, and they bring a perspective that very few can have, and it's important to to hear their perspective because they're part of taking the sport to the next level, and they both give back and they're respected so much. And I didn't know Kyle very well because he's older. That's a nice way to say old. That hurts. That hurts. That's okay though. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just different generations, right? Yeah, we were. Yeah. You know, we raced against each other, but we didn't, you know, we didn't hang out. You know what I mean? It was, uh, you know, we, I was coming in and, you know, the older group, they were already together. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So you kind of work your way in. You're nice and all, but you don't hang out with each other. But started working uh, with Kyle and I was like, damn, that guy there, he's smart. Who in our sport today has seen as many things as Kyle Petty that's still actively involved in the sport? I mean, it's amazing what he's seen and been part of and experienced goods and bads and and can see it all and have a perspective about it and then if you have two hours to kill and need to bullshit for a little while there's no one better there's no one better that's a fact that's probably true just sit back and tell stories because there's not one that you can tell that he doesn't have a better one about not one you can't top it yeah. there's no way you can top it they keep coming uh so great people yeah. and fun and that's what this whole concept was about mm-hmm. right yeah. it's like just going back in time a little bit and understanding the you know the perspectives of those guys and and then how it relates to today and there's nobody that does as well as Kyle Petty. And you're talking about when Jeff and Bobby Labonte and Ward and all those guys come in. I'd already been here 10 or 12 years at that time. And I came in, you know, when, when Earnhardt came in and then Rusty and Mark and, and you guys came in. But here's the one thing, you know, and you talk about hanging out with guys. I've always had this problem. I talk freer with Jeff and, and more with people now than I ever talked when I drove because I was taught from a very, very young age, that not to be friends with other drivers. 
You, you, you don't be friends with them. And not for the reasons you would think. It was for the reason that they may not be here next week. They may not make it mm. to the next race. Listen, I went to Daytona when I was a kid, and we'd be playing in the infield with, with families, and their mom would come and get them. And I never saw those kids again for 20 or 30 years because their father had been, been killed in an accident at the racetrack. And, and that's just what you yeah. grew up with. So my dad never got close to people. He was acquainted with people. He sat and talked to people. He respected the other drivers. But they didn't go to dinner. Uh, they didn't hang out and grill next to the bus. They just didn't talk. They, they, didn't, they didn't have that relationship because it was easier to put that place in your head and say, well... He did this wrong, or this is why this happened, or something. Sometimes I think, and I look back, and I think I missed a lot of that. You know, I, I, I honestly do by not being being closer to, to to other drivers and not spending more time talking. I spent more time with other crews and other, and guys that worked on cars, uh, crew chiefs, and you know, Will Lynn, Kurt, guys like that that worked for Earnhardt, and other guys that worked uh, Lynn and Eddie Wood. Even when I didn't drive for him, I, I hung out with those guys. So it's a it's a, it's a different time, and I, I've been. I, I say it before, and I, I was, I've said it, and Jeff and I, we've talked about it. I got to grow up with my dad and, and all those guys. I got to be there when Earnhardt came and Mark came and Rusty came and Ricky Rudd came and Terry Labonte came, and then I got to race against Bobby and Jeff and Ward and all these guys, and then along comes Tony Stewart, and I'm still here beating my head against the wall, and then here comes Jimmy Johnson. I get to race against him. So when when I look at it, in the history of the sport, there's a wide gap there that that – is still in my head. I, man, I remember Dan Gurney went in Riverside in a, in a car that had three numbers, 121. 120, that was the baddest thing in the world, man. You're like eight, nine years old, and the, there's a car with three numbers on the side of it, man. We only had two on the side of ours, and it was 43. But it's like so cool to be able to see Dan Gurney and Parnelli Jones and guys like that race. And I think about it, and it's part of being able to grow up with Richard Petty is what it is, you know, more so than anything else. I was just very blessed. And I say all that just because I just never, I apologize. I never got a chance to be as close as what I probably should have been or I always built a little bit of a wall there between me and people. Hey Kyle, I want to tell I want to tell one little short story. Back in the day about 82, it was 1982, you had Kyle Petty's boot barn. Yeah. We were all up at Martinsville racing, qualifying, you know, qualifying on Friday or something or on Saturday uh after second round uh, we all headed to the Kyle Petty's boot barn. Got I bought me some boa boots, man. I was yeah. styling, but, but I went with Tim Richmond. Yeah, you know we were some rogue <laughs> fellas heading it up into you know Kyle Petty's boot barn. I don't remember if you were there or not, but uh, you might have gone a... too. But we had. Oh, did you get a time. discount? <laughs> no. Well, you didn't get a discount, Kyle. Kyle, you. Owe I would have given him a discount. I would have given him a discount. Okay, I owe him. I owe him a discount right now. I I, I have to make sure. <laughs> Uh, that, you got to send it some way. I don't know. You can send it with your iPhone. I'll send money with my iPhone. This is uh, so. Here's the here's the here's the good part. I was I was like one of those guys when when anything come along, man. I jumped on it. Urban Cowboy. I sold boots. I brought 600 cases of Lone Star beer back from Texas after a, a race in College Station, Texas, in 1981. Me and Mike Beam. Uh, the back car broke loose. And busted about 200 cases of beer. And I'll never forget it. Never forget it, man. We washed that car. We cleaned that car so good. And my dad took that same car uh, after we run Riverside. He took the same car to... uh Rock and Amerson. I don't know where we were at, and he kept saying, "This car smells like beer, man. Why? Why's this car smell like beer? This beer wasn't running out of the rocker panels on this thing, and we had washed that thing so good, so we wouldn't get caught. But he caught us with it, so that's a that's a whole other issue." Do you ever get frustrated that you can't watch certain live sport events because they aren't televised or available in your country? 
With NordVPN, you can switch your virtual location to a country that is showing every NASCAR event you want to watch so you don't miss out and you can watch the action live. It's the price of a cup of coffee every month, a small price to pay for premium cybersecurity and access to a vast amount of entertaining content from all over the world. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash NASCAR to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four free months. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Man, that's that's awesome. So you're talking about, Kyle, you're talking about not really getting that close with the drought, which nowadays, right, the, that's way different. Hold on, hold on, is it? Well, I mean... <laughs> I mean, seriously, is it? Like, that's the perception. That is the perception. But I that's don't right. know that it is. I didn't have buddies that drove race cars. I don't know that it's any different. I think that it's different for different reasons. Mm. I think it's the same for yeah. different reasons. Yeah. Now it's just, I think teammates have taken some of that away. Yeah. I think that... When you spend so much time on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in a shop or whatever with engineers, you know, teammates kind of work together. But hell, I mean, Mark will tell you this. I mean, Rusty Wallace set up my race car one day in the damn garage area of Dover because I couldn't qualify worth a damn. And he said, well, here, and he got his notebook up and set my car up in practice to go make a mock qualifying run. Right. If you did that day, get fired. Yeah. We didn't yeah. go to dinner that night. Right. We didn't yeah. go to dinner that night. We were just, we had respect for each other, right? So I don't know that it isn't different. Okay. Yeah, that's the word. That That's the word. I think the big word is respect. You, you had respect for each other, and you had respect for their driving ability and their mechanical ability. Because everybody at that time worked on cars, man, and, and knew how to work on cars. Knew how to set a front end, knew how to run the tow pattern, knew how to do everything you needed to do to make that car. There weren't many guys in the garage area didn't understand mechanically what gave mechanical grip, what took mechanical grip away. Uh, and how to make a car drive. So that I think that's a lot of it, too, is the respect side. You know what, Jeff? I never thought about it like that because, obviously, yeah. for me, I'm I've, the only thing I've seen is growing up with the Coyle Joys, the Brandon McReynolds, Ryan and Bubba and all these guys. And we all hang out, but we also were young and kind of all in the same you know spectrum. You guys were already to the cup level before you kind of met each other. So it was, it was a lot different because you guys already – professionals are trying to be that we were just a bunch of kids trying to figure out if we could even stay in the sport you know so that that is yeah. a massive difference yeah it is listen and and I, i've said it before and I, I came a totally different way i grew up in a cup garage area my first race i went to daytona and run an arca race my second race i went to talladega and run a cup race my third race i went to atlanta i went to michigan i went to ontario i went to charlotte i'd run at the end of my first year of driving I had run six races, and the smallest race track I'd ever been on was a mile and a half, which is crazy, which is absolutely crazy. I still think my dad was trying to get rid of me, but that, that's a whole nother issue. You know, Mark, when you came 82, 81, 82, 83, right along there, by the time I started driving full-time in a full season of Cup, I only had like 32 total races in my life, and out of those 32, 28 of them were at Cup-level racing. I learned to drive a race car and a Cup car. And that was the deal for me. So it was, it took me a, a while to, to understand the whole part of it. Yeah, you learned to drive a race car racing with Cale Yarborough and David Pearson, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and the greats. I mean, Buddy Bakers and Bobby Allison, you know, these guys. And that had to be high pressure uh, because when most of the guys came in during that time, 
They ran back of the pack cars and stayed the hell mm-hmm. out of the way. Yeah. And and got experience and learned how to make the cars work and make them handle for the long run. The hardest thing about cup racing for me was oh, you talked about sitting on the pole uh, in eighty one at Nashville, my third yeah. race. So I sat on the pole on Friday night, and then they had sat Saturday afternoon practice. So Saturday afternoon, I, I roll out, and I ran three, maybe four laps. They were three-tenths a lap faster than the fastest car there. I parked it, put it on jack stands, and was done. Never made another lap. If it was my late model, it would have stayed like that all night long. Whoa. I mean, I blasted off in the race. I ran about uh, 20 laps. I come on the radio and I said, I think I got four flat tires. <laughs> and I was I was lapped before lap. I went from the pole to lap down before lap 100. You had to learn how to make your car handle horribly, horribly on new tires and in, on green racetracks and all that stuff so that it would drive good in 500 miles. You had to be a fortune teller. You had to be yeah. able to see that. And you could only learn that from experience. From running those cars and running them in practice and racing those races and staying the heck out of the way. You kind of like today, you started your deal with pretty damn good equipment. Yeah. You yeah. know, and people probably expected more out of you than to just stay the heck out of the way. So it was really a high pressure situation. Not only that you started out running nearly 200 miles an hour instead of running a quarter mile back home. Yeah. Not only that, but, you know, there you were had in a different situation expectation-wise. Hey, KT, yeah. Yeah. tell the story. I don't I not, don't want you to give your book away, <laughs> but tell the story about how your dad taught you to drive Daytona. Oh, my God, man. Mark will appreciate this. True story, man. So Steve Mill, Mark worked with Steve. Y'all worked with Steve. We had that old Dodge Magnum, and, and my dad, we'd switched to Chevys. We had switched to GM's, GM cars in, in 78. It was a really bad year at Petty Enterprises. Um, and we were down to just a few guys. And, and I've said this before. My dad went in the Daytona 500, and Adam went in that ARCA race. Are my two biggest accomplishments in racing because I got to help build those cars. I got to help build the car my dad won because we didn't have any other employees. Steve Mill, Richie Bars, and myself hung a body and, and went down there, and, and he won it. But anyhow, I go to Daytona. My dad says, if y'all can get that car ready, we'll go test it somewhere. That's why he said, test it somewhere, okay? So Steve and I, but he said, you, you can't work on it during work hours. So we'd work after work. And after work, maybe 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. Everybody just worked long hours. Nobody had a had a 7 to 5 or 7 to 4 or 8 to 6 whatever you you worked all as much as you had to to get a car running so we got that thing running and dale inman is the only one who who when he's around he'll vouch for my dad had never let me sit in a car and crank it he had never let me back it out of the garage area and warm it up he had never let me drive a car anywhere not a not a race car so we got that thing ready and he said we're gonna put it on clyde which was a rollback truck we had he said, we're going to go to Daytona and test. And I'm like, yeah, let's go to Daytona, man. I don't know any different. So we, we haul that baby down there to Daytona, and we unload it, and we warm it up that morning. And he strolls in there. You know, it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock because you can turn two over there. you got to make sure it's dry. You know how it used to – that dampness used to lay on it all the time. You had to wake sure. So he rolls in. He said, well, come on. We went over and checked the, checked the racetrack with a piece of toilet paper. You know how you used to lay a piece of toilet paper on it and make sure that it would it'd soak up? Because toilet paper would soak up water. Where paper towel wouldn't, you could fill it. He said, well, put that car cover in that right side and get over there and get in on that side. So I threw the car cover in the right side of this car. 
and I climb through the window, and he gets in the seat, and he's putting the seat belts on. He's got a helmet on, you know what I mean? He's got his sunglasses on. He's looking like Cool Hand Luke over there, man. He's We're getting ready to go. He fires that baby up, and out the garage area we go, man. And he runs up through the gears, you know, and we're riding along. Not not very fast, and he's we're on the bottom of the racetrack, and they just repaved the place, but there were some swells and still some bumps in it. And uh, he said, when you come out, you need to stay on the flat, and he's, we're on the flat, and he's showing me how to warm up. I never warmed a car up. You know, and used to, you had to ride around a couple laps, get some heat in the gear, get some heat in the engine and stuff, get the oil temperature up. It's before you plugged everything in. So he feels like it's temperature gauge is moving, pressure's moving, everything's looking good. Hammer down, down the back stretch. We go off into turn three there, and, you know, and he's driving along there, and he sits with the steering wheel right here anyhow, you know. And then he just starts talking to me. And he's like, well, way up here, you can see coming out of turn four, the racetrack really flattens out. You want to be down here, you can't get up here. And if you're going to be up here, be up here next to the wall. And we didn't could do this and we'd go down the front stretch and you come through the trioval and he'd point and we'd go into turn one and he's just screaming at me i'm on a a car cover i got one hand on the roll bar here and one hand on the roll bar here and i'm hanging on i swear i'm hanging on every word he's saying you know what i mean i'm like yeah i got you man i got you this is gonna be good and he's telling me all about we run like three left we run 192 193 miles an hour with me with me sitting on a – just sitting there, just sitting there, and, and he's just telling me how to do it. And we come in, and he pulls in the garage area, and I climb out and pull the car cover out, and he hands me his helmet, and he said, now it's your turn. And that was the extent of how he taught me how to drive a race car. That was my first <laughs> lesson. He took me out in a car and did that. And it was crazy, man, going someplace and running 200 and growing up on a short track and, and knowing speed. I couldn't tell whether I was in the straightaways or in the corners. I couldn't tell whether I was running 120 or 260. I, I, I don't know. I think I ran 153 my first lap around Daytona, something like that, because you just didn't know where you were at. And it took a while. You know, It took two or three days to, to get up where I felt like I could run, but... Man, I didn't have a clue how to drive a race car. I just knew I could go out there hey, and do Mama, it by myself. You're young, all your buddies. How many of them will let would put their kid in the right side of a race car or no helmet? <laughs> no, nothing. Just go around 192. How many would do that? They wouldn't do it in a go kart. Like, <laughs> like, they, like, like, like Larson and them. They they have their kids in the you know their roundabouts in their driveway, and they'll ride next to them in a on another one. But they ain't even riding with them. Like. Yeah. Dude, I don't even yeah. know how to respond to that story. Yeah, it's just it's a different time, man. It's a different time. We just grew up in a different time. That's why yeah. Kyle said Mark will like that because he knows that my I've got stories not like yeah. that, but crazy. It's just insane the stuff that was done in the seventies, you know, yeah. and and even early eighties still. But in, in the seventies, it, you know, it was just crazy. I mean, we we road tested our race cars all the time. Just oh yeah, them out. You know, build a brand new car for dirt racing and take it out on the highway and just run the hell out of it, you know. I mean, and just through the gear and all that stuff. And, I mean, that's right. some of the trips we took in haulers would top just about anything but Kyle's <laughs> Daytona story. I mean, it's like insane stuff. Hauler trips were the best, man. There was a biscuit place in Gainesville, Georgia, and we'd stop and buy like 14 boxes of biscuits and use the um, – defroster to heat them on the way to california because it take 42 hours to drive to riverside you'd take 42 hours to drive so we just heat the biscuits on the with the defrost and just keep digging man and just keep digging it is crazy it's crazy the things we did but we weren't doing a lot we weren't doing anything different than any other guy that right. loved to race wanted to race and wanted to be out there and this is how you chose to make a living man this is how what you chose to do it's a funny thing and, and I say this, and I say it with respect. I hear people sometimes say, man, I'm just burnt out. If you love something, you don't get burnt out, man. There was never a time in my life that I woke up on a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning or went to bed at 
ten thirty or eleven o'clock on a, on a Thursday night, busting your butt trying to get something that I thought, man, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just burnt out on it. I lived to be at a racetrack, and I, I still do. I like to go to the racetrack because I like race people. My dad's eighty five years old, and he and he went to twenty. He'll end up going to twenty four races this year, and and it's just it's your life, you know what I mean? And that's that's it's a hard habit to break. Um, and I hadn't figured out a way to you break know, it. You know yet. what's crazy? You just said your your old man's eighty five. From the time that I started watching the sport, I feel like he looks exactly the same. I feel like he hasn't aged a single day in my twenty five years of watching racing, and that blows my mind. And and Mark and Jeff both know this. There's a story in, in the book about Pearson when I ran my first race at Talladega about Pearson talking to me, but. I grew up with those guys, and you talk about how they look. But the fascinating part to me is I never realized how tough they were. Never realized how physically and mentally and mentally tough those guys were until I I, I started racing with. And then you realize, man, they just there is no give up in that. There is no stop. There is no well, you know. My, my glove, I got a hangnail, I can't drive this week. I got I can't get my can't get my glove on. I mean, these guys would sit in there with a broke neck, with broke ribs, with broke wrist, and, and they just got it done. Bobby Allison was was the best. You go down to Darlington someplace or Nashville at the fairgrounds, if it was ninety degrees in the city of Nashville, it would be two hundred and seventy five degrees inside that racetrack. That's how hot yeah. it was. I mean it was crazy. That's right. and Bobby would lap you. And have his hand out the window waving at you at the same time. It's like, or you'd come by and he'd be driving like this with one arm up on a roll bar beside of him. Just doing it one-handed, a manual, a manual steering, doing it one-handed. And you'd think, I'm not tough. I'm not worthy to be out here with these guys. You know what I mean? But you realized how tough they were. And that was, that was the cool part about, about that time in the 70s and, and especially early 80s. I got I to gotta tell a story about that Nashville trip, too, because it involves Dale Inman. Uh, you know, so that, that time that when I made those three laps and they were three tenths faster than everybody else, I put it on jack stands. I thought I had everybody covered before the race. We're strapped in, get in the car, strap in. He comes over, puts his elbows on the door sill and he looks down in the floorboard and he looks at me and I know who he is, but I don't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know yeah. who he is, but I don't know him at all. I know who he is. And so he leans in there and looks at the floorboard and looks at me and says, you got a hole in that floorboard? I said, no, why? See, because you're going to melt and run out of that thing tonight. <laughs> and, man, I thought, I'm going to show you something. I'm getting a shirt. And, Kyle, I got a picture of the first pit stop. It went green all the way. Lap oh, yeah. 140. Lap 140, I made a pit stop, and the right side's jacked up. And my f- open face helmet, my face is as red as Rudolph's yeah. nose, dude. Dale loves to tell that story. Every time I see him, he says, hey, 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 what did I tell you at Nashville? That's right, I mean, man. I, I was right, He's... wasn't I? And I said, yeah, he was right. <laughs> they, Those guys had seen it all, man. At that point in time, they had seen it all in their life, man. The first race I ran at Dover, I think I qualified 10th or 11th uh, with Mike Beam. And, and I'm, I'm feeling good, man. I mean, it's Dover. It's, it's, this is a legit racetrack, man. You got you to gotta kind of drive. Emmons said... Um, you need to put, he said, I'm just going to give you a little bit of advice here. He said, you need to put about five or six rounds of wedge in that thing before they drop the green, before the race starts. And I said, why? And he said, because this racetrack changes and it's just going to get, it's going to be bad. I think I ran 25 laps before I pitted, <laughs> pitted because I thought I had a flat right rear. That's how bad, that's how sideways I was. And the same, but they just knew, you talk about uh, earlier, you were talking about, you know, being fortune teller and reading the tea leaves and knowing where the racetrack was going they could set and tell you that Darlington was going to be this way, but in 20 laps it was going to be this way. 
and then 60 laps it was going to be this, and then it would come back to you at the end. The reason they could do that is because they ran the same freaking cars for three or four years at a time, and they ran the same tires year after year after year, 36s, 38s, 39s. 37s, you know, they were just the same compounds. So they knew what the compound the tire was going to do. They knew what the car was going to do. Their books were were deep and and long and they knew they knew how to adjust to it. I mean, it's so different like thinking like listening to that like more the driver side of it, right? Cuz we just don't that's what at the local level, you know, we still have that, but the drivers are just different cuz they don't you don't touch the car like you guys did. I did want to ask you guys a question. Because I think you guys, you guys have all done this. You guys have all raced with high-profile teams. But Kyle, your deal is a little different because you went from your family team at Petty Airfares over to the Wood Brothers, which to me is like, I mean, you guys are the foundation of our sport, and it's interesting to see you go from away from your family team to another another legendary team. Like, what was that like? It's the best thing that could have happened. Jeff knows now Harrison Harrison drives and works with Lynn and Eddie. The thing was, I had an opportunity. Let's go back because you had Junior Johnson and his team. You had Bud Moore and Greg worked there. His son worked there and, and, and his family worked there. The Wood Brothers, their family worked there. All these teams were family teams and had been family teams forever. All the top teams, all, all the teams that were at that level. And it was funny because basically I went from one family to another family. And I am still with Eddie and Lynn and, and, and Kim and Leonard, man, Leonard's the smartest guy I've ever met, bumper to bumper on a race car. End of conversation. I mean, transmissions, gears, engine ratios. I mean, he's just he's just crazy, crazy smart. But fans made a big deal about it because it was the Petty Pearson, Ford, Plymouth, Wood Brothers, Petty Empress. But the closeness of those two families and where they've been their entire lives, I don't think a lot of people understand that. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's it's more like you read the press clippings but you didn't know the people. So going there was an incredible opportunity for me and a very special time in my life because I went from a family team to a family team. I'm not sure if I had gone from my family team to a what Hendrick Motorsports was at the time. Uh, to eventually Felix when I went to drive for Felix, or to any other team, I'm not sure I would have survived because I only knew one thing, to, one way to do things, and it was the petty way. It's how Dale did it. It's how my dad did it. But that's the same way Leonard did it, and that's the same way Glenn did it, and that's the same way those guys did it. That was that old school stuff. I was so young. I was not so young, inexperienced, immature, so many things. I wasn't ready to to be at, at, a, at a really high-profile team. But, uh, listen, it was a great, great time in my life. They had gone from running the limited schedule. We started running the full schedule and I spent four years there. And it was, um, they, Leonard taught me more about front end settings, geometry, rear toe, so many things that it stayed with me the rest of my career that I learned at that place. I thought I knew a lot when I went there, but it was a master's degree when you <laughs> went to, to work with Leonard and worked with the Wood Brothers. So he was talking about going from one family run team to another and how he's done it. So you coming in younger than, than Kyle and Mark and then kind of doing it the way that you did it a little bit like Mark, you know, working on your own stuff. And then as that transferred, when you switched to RCR, I would imagine you weren't really as you weren't hands on like that anymore. So how different was that transition? Because Kyle's saying he doesn't know if he could have done that type of transit. What was that like for you? Well, the way the way that Mark came in and built his own car and showed up in Nashville and sat on the pole in his third race, the sport had changed enough where, you know, you couldn't do that anymore. Listen, I always wanted to own my own cup team, but it had gotten to the point where that just wasn't feasible. 
a few people tried, right? KP did it, uh, Ricky Rudd, you know, Daryl Waldrop. Like, it was right on that verge, but I was, you know, I was a rookie. And the first two, three, four, five years, it took to build a, you know, a brand where anybody or a name where anybody would do even be considered to do it. Well, then the cost just kept escalating, escalating, escalating. So now, you know, it's pretty much destined that you're going to drive for somebody else. And now you have to learn, okay, well, you know, now it's a matter of, yes, I want to be hands-on, but what does that mean? Because you have all these employees and they want to be hands-on and they really don't want the driver telling them how to, to do this. And, and so you now have to put yourself in a situation where you can work with people. They can work with you. They're not going to get mad when you tell them. I mean, listen, one of the maddest I've ever seen anybody in, in racing was we put uh, we went to Daytona to test and we were slow and we rented an engine from another team and put it in the tr- in the car to see what was it? it was a car or the engine. I hell, I thought we were just learning, right? But the engine the engine guys wanted to kill me. I mean, they wanted to kill me when I got back. <laughs> and I was driving for the Savolas. So you you were trying to do it. You wanted to be hands on. You wanted, but how do you do that? You know, now you don't get to say, well, you know, it's different, right? So, uh, and, you know, same thing these two guys dealt with as well. Even when Kyle was at, at Petty Enterprise, he still had to go through his dad and still had to go through Dale Inman and all that yeah. stuff, right? Well, and, and I mean this with the, it's just the sports just changed so much. I mean, the way people run. Yeah. I mean, I would listen, I would say the way that, uh, what cup racing was in the mid 70s is like late model teams are today. As crazy yeah. as that sounds. Oh, that's a great. And that doesn't analogy. make it wrong. I mean, actually, it makes it great. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. You know, it's riding in the truck and working on the car, and there were no hours, and you just did what you got to get done. It didn't matter how long the drive is, and you go eat some crap on the way, and you're gonna, you know, it's it's like late model teams are today, and tr- even trucks and Xfinity is such yeah. a business, and it's just it's two different worlds. Yeah. If you really want to find out, yeah. I mean, this if you really want to find out if you're a racer. Trucks, Xfinity, and Cups, not where you find that out. What are you willing to do yeah. when all your buddies are out drinking and raising hell and you're working on a late model making no money because you just love it? That's how you find out if you're a racer or not. Nothing yeah. against guys that make money yeah. you know, working That's on race right. cars. God bless them. Yeah. I mean, you know, thank God for them. And it's great yeah. we have a business that people can make money working on race cars. But you have to know if you really like to do it and you better, you better find out out early because it, it, it's hard to do it at this level. Yeah. You know, that's right. I think we all, and, and Jeff was on the tail end of it. Jeff, Jeff still caught a little bit of it. The tail end. We grew up believing in the dream and believing in the sport that this was a sport. That's what it was, man. If I work until 1230 or one o'clock, I can beat Mark Martin. I can outwork him. So I'll, I can beat him. And you do this, you polish a little bit more. You do this, just little things that you were convinced you could do to your car and you could be better. You raced. That's what it was. Well, just like Jeff said, while your friends were out, you know, at the bar, you were laying under that car at 1130, 12 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. polishing something or putting something on there that might not have been per the rules. Uh, it, it might have been an under panel or something. But my point was you were constantly searching. Then one day it became a business. One day it became a business. And when it became a business, then that mentality for a lot of people just went away because they looked at it more as a business. The owner looked at it. Everybody did. And that changed it for the drivers. Jeff came along at a time when he was more valuable to the team, sitting at, at a Kmart signing autographs, more valuable to the team going and giving a speech to a bunch of salespeople 
than he was being at the shop helping them set up the car. And that became the driver's specialty, and that became what the driver did besides driving a car. They expected you to be out there helping to find sponsors and helping to, helping them to keep everybody happy. Also, on top of that, as you kept making those cars faster and faster and faster, better and better and better, you started, you know, forcing more rules. There had to be more governance. There was less and less as we got, you know, closer to where we are today. There was less room to work on the cars to make them better. And then the driver was really more important signing autographs and doing appearances than than ever before but when when jeff you know even when jeff but you and i uh kyle and before us it was even more so when you got beat you went home and you spent the whole week looking at things that you could do on the car to make it faster yeah you never thought about i know kyle petty never thought about i'm gonna go out drive david pearson i never crossed my mind i would out drive dale earnhardt but i knew that I could beat him yeah. if I made my car good enough. Yeah. And that's exactly what you were saying. It's like you focused on that race car. That was your life. That's right. Uh, but there was room to do things to make them better. It's so close now. I, you know, I don't know. I, I would drive me crazy because <laughs> that was my yeah. edge was, you know, being able to go back and work on a race car. That's right. too. All those things you did, none of them made a difference on the stopwatch. But if you did a hundred of them, right. it might make five one hundredths yeah. of a second. Today, yeah. the drivers aren't in the shop working on the race car, but they spend ten times more effort into being better race car drivers than we ever. Did. Right? You know that's yes. that's what's oh, changed. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not a lot of people listen to this or, or huge football fans, but the drivers today are more like professional quarterbacks. And they're more like fighter jet pilots and they yeah. train, they study, they, they look in at data, they have a driver coach, they have like it's fitness, all that stuff is like next level. I mean, it's beyond next level. It's crazy yeah. the work that drivers are putting in today to be better race car drivers. Because if you're the smartest guy on your team about a right rear spring or a shock or something like that, you're in trouble. <laughs> you, You've got you yeah. better off having a guy yeah. Yeah. in today's world that wants to focus on being the best race car driver he can be. Yeah. Let that be his focus and let us handle the car. That's all part yeah. of we have so many people and engineers and all those things and access to technology that we didn't have before. And drivers are tapping into that. And so, you know, every generation works hard. It's just different. You know, it's a different kind. No, you're you're and you're exactly right. I think I think we came from a we all came from a, a from an era when if we go back and we we can get off this that we believed in natural selection that they were you just had naturally had a talent you would work on your talent but this is what how you worked on it and we worked on it a certain way we're at a place now where if you take a driver who has a little talent you can make him a race car driver you can he can develop into it and you can show him the right way to develop into it. We never had that opportunity. It's, it's like someone who plays music. You give them a guitar, and they learn three or four chords. And, and you say, okay, he's, he's pretty good. But then you hand the next guy the guitar, and he can already play songs, and he's never seen it before. You'd say, that guy's got talent. That guy's got a talent. Now, how do I develop that talent? And, and that's what we believe, that somebody would come along. Tim Richmond had tons of natural ability, tons of natural talent. I mean, some of the things that he did. And back to what Mark was talking about then. My dad always had this saying, and I will say this. 
and we learned this early, early on. And I don't know if he got it from his from my granddad. I don't know where it came from. But you race on Sunday, and the race would be over at five thirty six, six thirty seven o'clock. And you had his permission and Inman's permission. You could whine about it. You could complain about it. You could do whatever you wanted to until midnight. And at midnight, it was twelve oh one. It was Monday, and Monday you look to the next Sunday. Monday was time to start thinking about what am I going to do this week to make me better. They gave you that short period of time to whine about it and to get it out of your system. But then, by God, you better be back on track by 12.01. And I can't tell you how many times you'd leave Michigan at 7.30, 8 o'clock on a Sunday night and drive all the way home. And by the time you got home at 6.30 or 7 o'clock the next morning in that van and all your guys had been talking all night long, you had a way that you were going to kick their butt next week. You had, you had come mm-hmm. up with it in that, with that team, with those guys in that van, and you rolled out of there. You went to Frank and Larry's and, and ate a grilled cheese <laughs> sandwich and, and Coca-Cola, and you came back to work, and you were there at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you were busting your butt headed to the next race. So it was just – it's just different. It's just different. And, and I'm not going to reminisce about the we're, – we're reminiscing about the good old days, but they were just the days that we lived and the way that we did it because we loved it. And that's, that's, the, that's the easiest thing to say about it is we just – we all – all of us had that one – one drive and one passion just to love the sport. I think the best part of it is no matter what era that you guys were talking about, like riding, talking about riding with your team, you know, those late nights, even talking when I did that NASCAR Next uh, Now segment with, with some of the younger guys, like we still talk about those, those like for us, what that was. Yeah. And those are the days that you remember. And you're like, man, that was hard as hell. But then you're like, it was fun, though. It was a good old, you know what I mean? Yep. So um, I love that that part never goes away, no matter what the generation is. KP, yep. it's been a pleasure. Before we wrap up here, I need to hear, because I've never even talked to the man but one time. I got one autograph, and I was stoked. Uh, he came all the way to Thunder Road Speedball up in Vermont. I need one solid king story from you before we let you go that's something that something that the our listeners might not might not know richard petty's an open book man there's there's not anything there's not anything that that he's done or or ever been a part of you know i i don't know i I will honestly say this and i i say it i would say it about pearson and and kel and those guys too because i just knew him so long and and you know him as a kid i looked up to him as a kid I looked up to David. I was a huge Isaac fan when, when I was growing up, too. But you, you look up to those guys. Those guys never disappointed, never disappointed you. They never gave you a reason not to pull for them. They never gave you a reason to, to look at them and say, well, man, I, I would have never thought that would have happened. You know, these guys, the integrity, the love of the sport, the way they did things. And, and I'll say this about my dad is my dad is the same guy. It, that you met in Vermont, that Mark met for the first time, he's 85. He's that same guy. We live in a town where his name is Richard. Not Richard Petty. It's Richard because that's where he grew up. I, I tell people all the time, we grew up in a farm community where people raise tobacco and ra- have dairy farms and raise chickens. We just happen to raise race cars. That just happened to be our calling in that community. Can't tell you how many times when I was growing up, that the local farmer would bring his hay beller in there and set it right beside a Daytona 500 winner, and we'd weld something. They'd weld something up for him because that's how he made a living. He was a neighbor. That's how he made a living. How many times they'd weld a plow back together, 
or take a disc off and Magnaflux it and weld up a crack in it just to help somebody in that community. And that's just who he's always been. I, I will say this. Guys came to work there, and, and he hired them and didn't know anything about them. Jake Elder came to work there. My dad tells the story that I, was, I had just been born, and I'm laying in the living room in a crib, and Jake Elder almost tears the front door off the hinges. He's banging on the door and wakes me up. I'm like two, three months old, and it's him and Don Tilly. And my dad opens the door, and he said, two of the drunkest guys I've ever seen in my life are standing on my front porch. And Jake Elder said, hey, heard you were hiring. And my dad said, we're looking for somebody, looking for a welder. And Don Tilly said, I can weld anything. And Jake said, if he can weld it, I can make it run fast. And my dad said, come back tomorrow, and you got a job. And by God, they went, to, they went to the race shop and slept in the car, <laughs> slept in the car, and came to work the next day. Came to work. And that's where Jake got his start in cup racing, uh, was at Penny Enterprise. So there's so many stories like that that they gave somebody an opportunity because they felt like somebody, they loved the sport. They wanted to be a part of the sport. So many guys have driven for him and stuff. But the one story about Richard Petty is he is who he is. He's not any different. He's been everywhere. He's done everything. And in the end, I tell people this. He was my dad. I worked for him. Uh, I worked on it at the shop for him. I was on his pit crew. I was a teammate. I left. I was a competitor. I came back. I was a business partner. And eventually, I left and came back to just be his son. And the greatest thing in my life is being Richard Petty's son. My sisters and myself, that is, that it has been an honor to have him as a father. And no matter what, I don't see trophies. I don't see all that stuff. I see a dad. And that's, I think that's that's the greatest accomplishment any man can have, is just to be a dad. Well, race fans, it doesn't get much more powerful than that. Thanks to KP for joining us as our first guest on Triple M. For Mark Burton, Jeff Burton, I'm Mamba Smith, and thanks for joining us on Mark, Mamba, and the Mayor.